I shave my head every day, right? Because I'm old and bald. And I used to use the best razor on the market until I found out that the best razor in the market, the company that manufactured it actually product tested on animals. Hi, before we get on with this week's episode, I'd just like to say that Automated Creative are hiring. We're looking for a senior client lead as well as two client leads, as well as a head of growth, a senior Python developer and a React TypeScript developer. So if you would like to join a business that is absolutely crazy about the intersection of advertising and technology, then please give us an email at hiring at automatedcreative.net. Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton. I'm the founder of Automated Creative and this is a weekly show where I have the privilege of speaking to some of the most exciting people in the industry and this week is no different. I'm on a call with Port Garrido, Head of Social Coca-Cola HBC. So DG, as I'm, you tell me I can refer to you as Edward, <laughs> can you give us a bit of background on who you are and what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. And kudos on the pronunciation. It was, uh, it was pretty spot on. Um, so a little bit of background on me. I'm Portuguese, as you can probably tell from my, uh, from my weirdly pronounced name. I was born in Lisbon. I came to the UK about eight years ago um, to study international journalism in Cornwall. And from then I moved on to Reuters, where I became a reporter and a, then a producer and an editor. And that took me to Sky News, uh, where I managed and edited their entertainment section of the digital website. And um, my foray into social media was actually at Sky, where I noticed that the articles and the, the content that we were creating on a digital desk was then being distributed and amplified by the social media desk, which was working in a silo, literally on, an, on another part of the room. So me at the time, when I was writing articles, I was creating videos, I was editing other people's content as well. So I decided to just reach out to, to the social media team and sort of bridge that, that gap. Um, and, uh, and that became, was really, you know, the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And uh, eventually that led me to lead the daily operations on the social media desk at Sky News, and uh, which was an amazing time. I had a lot of fun there. Um, and it was, uh, I don't know, about a year, year and a half uh, after that, I got um, sort of a, a very peculiar invitation to join the biggest tobacco company in the world, Philip Morris International, as their deputy head of global social media to basically assemble a content team from scratch. And, you know, you may be thinking, why would someone want to join a big tobacco company? And that was my, my thoughts exactly. But uh, the peg here was that Philip Morris International was uh, pledging to stop selling cigarettes and becoming a science and technology driven company. So that radical transformation, that sort of um, unforced disruption uh, was an incredible communications challenge. And from a social media point of view, it was quite unique. So I took it. And uh, I was there for nearly three years. I built a team from scratch. I built a content studio from scratch. Well, I helped build a content studio from scratch and a social media operation. Uh, we empowered 
over 70 markets to um, to launch their own social media accounts and and do their own social media work. So that was that was a lot of fun, and uh, it was a I would say my my biggest uh, social media foray up until now. Um, and uh, and now I'm at Coca-Cola HPC, where I'm global head of social. And again, I'm I'm starting an operation pretty much from scratch, and uh, and it's been fun so far. And we were introduced last week, I think, by the Future Conference, and that's FUTR today. And you're speaking there on the first of July. What what are you going to be covering? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I think the topic is going to be how to leverage social media to build trust. And trust is something that I'm um, um that I have a lot of interest on. Um, and how to build trust uh, aligning on a values-based approach. So that's going to be the key topic of my uh, keynote at uh, Future. So across that interesting career, what has been a new belief or behavior that's helped you have a better work life? It's a really interesting question. I'm going to go with behavior here rather than belief. I, I, that's because I always tend to incline more towards actions than intentions. Like you're better off changing small little things in your routine every day than having, you know, great ambitions about the kind of marketer you want to become or the kind of father, the kind of husband or, or what have you. You know, there's, there's this old Portuguese saying that I don't think it translates very well, but it goes something like a hell is brimming with good intentions. So I, I, I tend to rather live, you know, incrementally and through behaviors. But anyway, I digress. Well, the question was, you know, in the last five years, which new believer behavior has improved the quality, the, the quality of my work life? So I'm going to go with behavior. And a new behavior that has improved the quality of my work life has been, I would say, learning through podcasts which is quite meta since I'm, I'm, I'm speaking on one, but that has radically uh, revolutionized not just my life, my personal life, but, but also my career. So obvious question, how do you learn through podcasts? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, this, this, my, my foray into podcasts started a couple of years ago. I mean, obviously I'd heard podcasts before, but I really got into it as part of my daily routine uh, about two years ago, where I started waking up religiously just before 6 a.m. for no reason, without an alarm clock. I think it's just getting old. <laughs> we'll do that to you. Um, and I, I now wake up about an hour before even my, my young daughter and my wife wake up. So what I do is I get my earbuds, I get my Tibetan Terrier by you, and we go for our 6 a.m. morning walk in the park in London. And through that morning walk, which takes us about an hour, I listen to a podcast of, uh, you know, an industry podcast. And that is... And so which ones? What are your go-tos? Oh, that's, that's a great question. So I've got a, a few favorite ones. My favorite one by far is the CMO podcast from Jim Stengel. Uh, yeah, yeah, very good. I, I, I love it because it's, you know, I love podcasts where I can listen to my peers, but... The, my, the CMO podcast is me listening to my gurus. So it's even more valuable to me. Um, I have a few others that I really like. I love yeah, social on. pros. Social pros, yeah. I'm writing all these down. If I, uh, yeah, social myself. pros is, is a really great one. Uh, 
B2B marketing is, is a great one as well, the, the one with Sarah Goodall. Uh, obviously, Shiny New Object. I listen to it Come religiously. On, mate. Didn't I'm not even that. joking. This <laughs> is absolutely true. This is absolutely true. I have a long list of, of very good podcasts. I'm, uh, I don't mind sending them to you after a few weeks. Yeah, interested. well, maybe we could share them like on the LinkedIn post or something or the blog post that accompanies this. So that's a deal. So that is, that is yeah, we, another time. Let's, I'll, I'll tell you about my morning routine as well This and how <laughs> relatable that is. So, so podcasts. Great behavior. And I, I love that. I love that. Um, hell is brewing with good intentions. That's funny. Um, so the next one is, what is your top marketing tip? What is the bit of advice that you give, you, give your team most often or people who would ask for advice? What is that kind of nugget? So the best marketing tip, I don't know if I've ever actually passed it to anyone, but it's a marketing tip that I received when I wasn't yet a marketer but that I've applied throughout my career uh, and it's been, it's proved incredibly, incredibly valuable. Uh, it is start with cake. And it's, it's a weird one, but let me tell you a story about it. Um, it was given to me by my mentor, uh, an assigned mentor, by the way, I've just sort of, uh, uh, I, I chose him as my mentor. When I started off at Reuters, on my, in my internship as a young journalist, I think it was my first day there. Um, I was, you know, still learning the ropes and trying to get a sense of what, what the company was about and what the job was about. And I, I, I lacked confidence, obviously, full of imposter syndrome. And I met um, Axel Threlfall, who was editor, uh, Reuters editor-at-large, who is still Reuters editor-at-large, because this, you know, really important guy in the company, Reuters face uh, in any big conference in Davos, et cetera. Um, and he's this amazing, um, full of life character. And he, for absolutely no reason, just got, you know, sort of said to me in my first day, if I wanted to take the train back with him uh, at the end of the day. And I, and I did. And he just said, you know, you're this, I, I can tell that you're an intelligent guy, that you're an ambitious guy. Uh, that you're friendly and that people like you. And that's, that's amazing. He told me, you know, I'm sure that you'll have a fantastic career ahead of you and that you'll stay at Reuters and get a permanent gig here. Uh, my only piece of advice is, you know, just bring, bring you know, be, be friendly, smile and bring cake. People love cake. And I did, you know, a couple of days after, I think it wasn't the next day, but I think the couple of days after uh, I baked a, an orange cake at home and I brought it. And I took it and everyone had a slice. And, and that sort of, it, it worked for some reason. It, it, was, this, it was this magical uh, piece of, you know, goodness at the center of the room. And people just sort of passing by, grabbing a piece and chatting to me and getting to know me. And I feel like that changed my whole approach to working in an office environment, to working in a team, to being part of something, to being part of a culture which is, you know, start with something sweet, you know, get people in, start talking to them, be friendly. And that's something that I actually, as a marketer, apply almost metaphysically to everything I do. Even, you know, I've, I think business meetings should always start with you going around the room and asking people something great that they've done over the weekend, you know, or, or something funny that happened to them uh, 
which is something that will break the ice, that will get people to talk about something else than work, uh, and that will get them sort of warmed up and, and friendlier to each other. And I, I feel like whatever conflict comes from the brainstorm or, or from the strategic meeting, it's going to be softened by, by that by that proverbial sort of piece of cake. <laughs> Such a great bit of advice. And thanks for sharing that story. <laughs> Just really realizing there's absolutely zero cake at the start of my own podcast. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. This week, we are brought to you by Attest. Attest is a consumer research platform that enables brands to make customer understanding a competitive advantage with continuous insights. By combining unparalleled speed and data quality with on-demand research guidance, the platform makes it simple and fast to uncover opportunities with consumer data and grow without guesswork. So we're going to talk now about your shiny new object, which is values as a driver of consumer action. So I think I know what some of those words mean, but as a sentence and as a shiny new object, what does that mean to you and why have you chosen it today? I chose that as a shiny new object because I wanted it, I wanted, you know, I could have chosen the latest, you know, social media um, software that, I, that I'm using that's been proving valuable or the latest marketing technique that I've read and try it out. But actually, this is something quite metaphysical and intangible to some uh, performance marketers, not so much to to the CMO level, uh, because they're quite uh, akin to what to, to the role that words like purpose and trust and values uh, actually matter when it comes to to uh, customer intention and customer action. But I'm going to start with actually one episode from the, the, the CMO podcast with Jim Stengel, in which he brought in Lorraine Tuhill and Marvin Chow from Google. Uh, and they were explaining how Google was evolving from a product marketing focused organization, which sort of had been since its inception almost, to focus more on brand marketing, you know, on, a, on building a brand narrative to tie the company together. And this was the episode that got me thinking past purpose, because I feel like we're a point, we're at, at a point as marketers where purpose is a bit of a given, you know. If as an organization or as a marketer or as a CMO, you, you don't realize the value that purpose has, then I'm afraid you're uh, you're you're far behind uh, and you're a lost cause. <laughs> so that this this episode actually got me thinking beyond purpose, and I'll tell you why. Basically, Google, you know, it's a pretty. If you think about it, it's a pretty brandless company, right? Even with all its logos and color palettes and company culture and lingo, what is Google to the to the average consumer? And I'm I'm, I'm throwing this question back at you. What is the one thing that comes to mind when you think Google? Search. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. I was hoping you'd say that because search is not what Google is. Search is actually one product of Google and it's actually a product in decline, to be honest. I don't know if, if, um, if you've heard of, uh, of um, a small company going around called Neva, 
that's been uh, it's it's a small startup that's rivaling Google. It's search without ads. It's been uh, catapulted by Reid Hoffman, who is the founder of of, um, of LinkedIn, and by other venture capitalists. So this is you know Google is ha- Google as a search engine is going to have a lot of trouble in the future. But exactly to the average consumer, Google as a brand is limited to one of its flagship products, search. So Google has focused so much on building great products and giving those products autonomy to fail or succeed, they're known for that, that they actually forgot how to build a brand, a brand that will stand the test of time, even when new agile competitors come in to disrupt the market, right? And then I started thinking, okay, so what is Google's brand purpose? They must have one, right? And I went and and, and did some research. And I was listening to this specific episode, and I remember that Lorraine Tuhill, Google CMO, she kept talking about helpfulness. Google is helpful. We're helpful. And I was like, okay, well, this is great as a brand purpose if you're a Google engineer or if you're a product manager, right? Because basically what it does is it gives you direction for product building, you know? Everything that Google does needs to be helpful to the consumer. We're we're a consumer-centered company. That's awesome. That's great. That even helps build culture within the company. But ultimately, what does that do for the consumer? As an average consumer, are you going to choose to buy a product from a company because the company is helpful? I mean, that isn't a value. That's a utilitarian purpose, right? So that serves culture, that serves product, but that does nothing to capture demand. That does nothing to create demand. And if you look at these big research papers from uh, Deloitte Digital, you know, uh, on trust, and you look at Edelman's Trust Barometer and Accenture's, all these companies have done their consumer research and they came up with consumers will now buy products based on values. And the word value kept coming in. And I started thinking, okay, values. Being helpful isn't a value. And then I looked at another industry that's being threatened by, by, uh, by younger sort of startup type companies, banking, right? We have these big incumbents. And I looked at, and I, let me look at HSBC, which is the UK's biggest uh, you know, incumbent. And their purpose is to open up a world of opportunity. Again, there is no, it's, this isn't a value-based purpose, right? This does nothing to capture the interest of the consumer. And then I looked at Revolut, right? This new agile startup that's come in to the fintech world to disrupt. And they don't even talk about purpose. They go straight into their brand values. There are, they are think deeper, stronger together, never settle, right? So what does this tell you? Togetherness, right? Ambition, thrive. So this, these, are, these are values, right? And you look at a, a smaller bank like Standard Chartered, for instance, they actually nailed it. Their brand purpose is here for good. And that's smart in two ways. One, because you know it's here for good in terms of here for good to stay. So it says consistency. 
but also good, good as in a value, a human value that people can rally behind. So we know that the coming generations and even millennials to some, to some extent will choose purpose over product, right? They won't, they don't care that your product is the best product in the market if your company's values don't align with their values. So having a values-based approach to your purpose is absolutely essential. This is actually how you build a great brand DNA. And this is how you ensure that your brand remains relevant in the future. And it's even more important for these big incumbents who, who are often oblivious to the fact that they are already in decline because future generations distrust them, right? So they need to look at their brand DNA and think, what are our values as a brand that can speak to human values, that can speak to this new generation, that this new generation can understand, take, it, take them as their own, rally behind. And for instance, in the case of Google, if they want to sell their Google Pixel, you know, if they want to get Gen Z uh, out of the iPhone, of the, of the Apple wall garden, right, which they are in now, we know that Apple isn't a good company, right? Apple sticks, consumer, sticks consumers behind their wall garden through closed systems. And they did that very, very well. But if Google wants to disrupt that and take customers away, from Apple's iPhones into the Google Pixel, they're not going to do that by selling a product that's helpful. They need to speak to this generation's core values. And then Gen Z will buy the Google Pixel, not because it's a luxury item like the iPhone, not because it's a helpful product, but because they see Google as a company for good, unlike Apple. So they speak to the values of the consumer and profit will follow. So many things, so many questions I'd like to ask you, but we are, we're out of time, unfortunately. So we we may have to have a follow-up episode at some point. So I'm going to try and ask a a short question. Hopefully there'll be a short-ish answer to it. So do values matter at the point of purchase? Of course. Absolutely. And, and what is your data point for this? That's exactly what I was talking about when I was referencing the Edelman Trust Barometer and the uh, Deloitte Digital's uh, research on, on trust. They actually look at, uh, at buyer intent and they, they, they come Ex- up with this. Exactly, exactly. Buyer intent, claimed behavior, claimed beliefs. Because in, in, in our practice as, as a business, uh, we, we don't see that. When it comes to looking at actual behavior, actual purchase, actual you know, arrival at site and CRM capture and stuff, that stuff doesn't work. However, I'm not saying that's not saying it's not important, but I'm just as a, a provocation that what people claim and what people do is very, very different. And that's the data that we see. So I'm curious to know that, yes, if you're doing a TV spot, yes, you should talk about uh, the values behind your purpose and you argue that point beautifully. But talking from my own personal experience, when I went to buy a phone the other day, I had like no idea what phone to buy. I just don't care. And the, the person in the shop said, which phone do you want? And I was like, I don't know, like which one, which one do you recommend? And what was the price like? The fact that Samsung's values or Google's values or Apple's values were present or not present in my mind didn't matter at all. So 
the question is, is what proof do you have that it matters at the point of purchase where things like price, urgency, and deals come in? It absolutely matters. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll follow your anecdotal story with, with one of mine. Um, and, I, and by the way, neither of us are the, the focus here because we're talking about a generation that's much more values-driven and much more eco-conscious than, than, than ourselves. But I'll tell you a, an anecdotal story about my own purchasing habits. As an example, I shave my head every day, right? Because I'm old and bald. And I used to use the best razor on the market until I found out that the best razor in the market, the company that manufactured it actually product tested on animals. Now, this for me is, it, it rings very, very close to my heart because I'm, I'm an animal lover. I'm a dog owner. I will not buy a product from a company that tests, uh, that does animal testing. So what I did was I bought a substandard razor that hurts my head every day when I, when I shave, uh, sometimes literally to the point of bleeding because they are cruelty-free. And I know that this is an an anecdotal story, but this is why eco-conscious brands are actually on the rise here. It's not because they've put the best products on the market, Tom. It's because their values are in the right place and because consumers today, but most importantly, consumers tomorrow, they will buy according to their values, whether that has to do with impact on the environment, on people, on planet, on animals, or even in society in general, and the impact those companies have uh, on, on our quality of life. Now, trust me, it matters, and it does drive buyer, not just buyer intent, but at point of purchase as well. Uh, Duarte, we have to leave it there. Um, I would love to continue this conversation another time. And as I'm sure there are many listeners who will want to reach out to you, and how do you want them to do that, and where? I would say LinkedIn is the first Port of uh, the, the first port of call. I'm 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 quite active on it. So, if you want to look me up on LinkedIn, uh, I'm Duarte Carrido. Uh, this is hard to pronounce, <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's easier to search. D U A R T E. That's my first name. And if you want to uh, contact me on Twitter, I'm at DG on social. And those are by far the two best ways to get hold of me. Duarte, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hi, just before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the Shiny New Object Podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever it's called these days, or whichever podcast provider you use. We're an indie podcast, so it would go a long way for us if you could just share the word and give us a bit of a support on those channels. That would just be fantastic. If you haven't got time, that's also cool. And yeah, if you could tell your colleagues about the podcast and also, if possible, don't forget to subscribe. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, if you'd like to speak on the podcast or be a guest or you think I'm asking the wrong questions, anything, I'd be super interested to hear what you think. So please email me at tom at automatedcreative.net. That's T-O-M at, uh, I'm not going to bother spelling it. Anyway, you'll work it out. Thanks so much.